Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this day. We want to thank you for the week you just brought us through. We want to thank you for being so faithful to us. And we want to thank you for the season that we're in. Help us to turn our hearts to you and let you minister to us during this season and help us to truly be prepared to experience the high holy days in a way we've never experienced them before. May you receive all the glory, honor, and praise. In Yeshua's name, amen. So how many of you enjoy weddings? Weddings are beautiful. It's always exciting to see a young couple come together to commit their lives to one another, to agree to spend the rest of their lives with one another, to go on this journey together as a couple. I've been to some very, very beautiful and elaborate weddings. I've also been some that were very simple, but they're all beautiful in their own unique way. But there is one wedding that will exceed all weddings you can ever imagine. It, there's no way it can compare to anything that we can imagine here on this earth. And that is the wedding of our Messiah to us, his bride. In his vision in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, in verses 7 through 10, John saw and heard the heavenly multitudes praising God because the wedding feast of the Lamb, which we also refer to as the marriage supper of the Lamb, was about to begin. And that passage reads, Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us give him the glory. For the time has come for the wedding of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. Fine linen, and fine linen is the righteous deeds of God's people. Bride and clean has been given her to wear. The angel said to me, write, how blessed are those who have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Then he added, these are God's very words. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, don't do that. I am only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who have the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God, for the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. As you know, we're in the midst of the high holy days, so... Perhaps you're wondering why I'm talking about a marriage right here in the middle of this feast season instead of maybe Yom Kippur or Sukkot that's coming up. And there's, I'm going to give you an answer, but it's not a quick, short answer. I'm going to give you the long answer because that long answer actually happens to focus on the high holy days. As you know, we've just celebrated Rosh Hashanah, which is viewed as the holy day of regathering and which many rabbis have connected with the Messiah. With the Messiah being the agent of regathering. And to show you what I mean by that term regathering, I want you to listen to this commentary from the 8th century of the Common Era, from Maasai Daniel. Messiah ben David, son of David, Elijah and Zerubbabel, peace be upon him, will ascend to the Mount of Olives. And Messiah will command Elijah to blow the shofar. The light of the six days of creation will return and will be seen. The light of the moon will be like the light of the sun. And God will send full healing to all the sick of Israel. The second blast which Elijah will blow will make the dead rise. They will rise from the dust and each man will recognize his fellow man. And so will husband and wife, father and son, brother and brother, all will come to the Messiah from the four corners of the earth, from east and from west, from north and from south. The children of Israel will fly on the wings of eagles and come to the Messiah. Interesting passage. 
So what we see here is that the Messiah is viewed as being the agent of the regathering of the people. Now, I want to compare that commentary I just read to a couple of passages from Scripture to see if we can find any commonalities. The first one I want to look at is Isaiah. This comes from chapter 27, verses 12 and 13. It will come about in that day, Adonai will thresh from the channel of the river of the wadi of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, B'nai Yisrael. It will also come about in that day, a great shofar will be blown. Those perishing in the land of Assyria and the exiles in the land of Egypt will come and worship Adonai on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Now I want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a rousing cry, with a call from one of the ruling angels, and with God's shofar. Those who died united with the Messiah will be the first to rise. Then we who are left still alive will be caught up in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. So encourage each other with these words. And I want to look at one more passage. This one is from Matthew 24, verse 31. He will send out his angels with a great shofar, and they will gather together his chosen from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now the parallels, they are obvious. We see shofars, we see gathering, we see meeting in the clouds, the dead rising. But those are not the only three passages in our scripture that are similar to that ancient commentary. There are others. We just don't have time to get into them today. But a very important takeaway I want you to remember is that even rabbis who do not accept Messiah Yeshua do not believe he is actually the Messiah. They're looking for a Messiah to come in the same way that Yeshua is depicted in scripture as returning. So very interesting. Now I want to ask you an important question. If we believe that the Messiah will come in such a way, shouldn't we feel the need to be prepared to meet him? Of course we should. That's where the high holy days come in. One of the words that is used to describe feasts is the Hebrew word mikra, M-I-K-R-A-H, which means a convocation or a reading. It also carries with it the connotation of rehearsal, which is exactly what these feasts are. They're rehearsals. Think about it. The spring feast, we're rehearsing things that have already happened, past memories, events, and we encounter the Lord in a very real way when we do so. He meets us as we meet with him. Likewise, the fall feasts are a rehearsal of future events that are associated with the return of Messiah. We rehearse because we need to be ready when he returns. It will be too late to prepare when we hear the blast of the shofar. So we do not want to be caught by surprise. Just as rehearsal is important before presenting a play, a musical, or any other type of presentation, rehearsal and preparation for Yeshua's return is beneficial because we don't have to worry about whether we will be prepared or not. We don't have to worry about it being too late when we hear that sound because we won't have extra time to prepare. Adonai has given us these feasts as an opportunity to rehearse, prepare, and be ready. So think about it this way. Each year, the creator of the universe has given us a 40-day period of preparation for his return. We have the entire month of Elul, 
plus the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur that we're in the midst of now, those 10 days of awe that we talk about. That's the period we're in now. So we still have time. On the first day of the biblical month of Elul, we began a period of introspection and preparing ourselves for what was ahead in the month of Tishri. Then, on Rosh Hashanah, we listened to the sound of the shofar. Rosh Hashanah represents the day of repentance. And it's a time for us to take stock of our spiritual condition and begin to make the changes necessary in the year ahead to be pleasing to God. That's why the rabbis came to the conclusion that this day is the head of the spiritual year. The sound of the shofar is a reminder of the blessed hope that we as believers possess. We could enter Messiah's presence at any time, either because he returns for his bride or because we die. We don't know what those circumstances of our meeting him will be, so we need to always be prepared. The Bible gives us a parable that reinforces the importance of preparation. We looked at it last week, but it's also relevant for our class this morning, so I'm going to go back and repeat a little bit. It's commonly referred to as the parable of the ten virgins, and it comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 12, which I want to read quickly. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish ones took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in jars along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was taking a long time, they all got drowsy and started falling asleep. But in the middle of the night, there was a shout, Look, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. Now the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil since our lamps are going out. But the wise ones replied, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Instead, go out to those who sell and buy some for yourselves. But while they were going off to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Now later the other virgins came, saying, Sir, sir, open up for us. But he replied, Amen, I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore stay alert, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In verse 5, it said that the bridegroom was taking a long time. Now doesn't that sound like what we hear today by a lot of people, skeptics especially, that if the Lord hasn't returned by now, he's probably not going to. But guess what? We were warned in scripture that that very thing would happen. Didn't take our Lord by surprise. He knew what would happen. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, first of all, understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing, following after their own desires, and saying, where is this promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers died, everything goes on just as it has from the beginning of creation. Then a few verses later, in 2 Peter 3.9, we learn that there is a purpose for that delay. This is what the skeptics miss. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's important that we do not get lazy while we're waiting on Yeshua to return. As these verses reveal, there is a very good reason for his delay. Our God wants to give everyone 
an opportunity to repent and come to him. He does not want anyone to perish, so he continues to tarry. In the meantime, Rosh Hashanah is a time for us to focus on getting ourselves ready, not only so that we are prepared to meet him, but so that we can also be a witness to those around us that do not yet know him. None of us want to be like those foolish virgins who were left out of his kingdom. Likewise, we also want others to be ready and not to be left out. We all know people who keep putting off accepting the Lord. But guess what? In his book, Intercessory Prayer, Dutch Sheets tell the story of a man who had prayed for a friend of his for many, many, many years. This man wanted nothing to do with the Lord. Eventually, the man died. And guess what? There at the man's funeral, at the grave site even, as they were lowering the man down into the grave, his friend, who had rejected the Lord for so many years, accepted the Lord at the death of his friend. His friend didn't live to see it, but his prayers and his witness of all those years paid off. We never should give up on anyone. I also know a lady who prayed for a dear friend of hers for many years. A couple of weeks ago, her friend became very ill due to some health problems she had had, and she was admitted to the hospital in critical condition. This friend of mine went to the hospital to visit her friend, and she once again witnessed to her friend. And right there in her hospital bed, her friend accepted the Lord. Less than a week later, her friend went to meet the Lord. So she's now with him in eternity. Because even though she had reject, rejected her witness for many years, she did accept. So, and I, we could tell you story after story after story of people who like that. Don't ever give up on people. Whether you see the change or whether you don't, always know you're planting seeds and your prayers are never worthless. God hears them and he will answer. The lesson is this. Although people may scoff and they may reject, don't give up on them. Like I said, Adonai never gives up on them and we shouldn't either. Matthew 25, 13, which I read just a few moments ago, gives us an important warning as well. It says, therefore stay alert, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This brings us to something that I mentioned last week as well. There's a definite connection between the story of the ten virgins and Rosh Hashanah. Because, as I mentioned last week, in ancient Israel, the exact night on which the new moon would appear was uncertain due to an irregular number of days in the lunar cycle. We usually estimate it to be 28 days, but it's really not. It's really a bit over 29 days. So you'll see a leap year. You'll see that our, the months on our calendar are not the same. We have 30 days. We have 31 days. We have 28 days, sometimes 29 on a leap year in February. And on the biblical calendar, you see the month of Adar repeated twice every so many years, and that's to recalibrate the calendar because of this irregular cycle. And because of this irregularity, in ancient times, designated Jewish authorities would keep watch for the sighting of the moon, since they didn't know the exact day it would appear. They would sound the shofar to notify the people when the new moon was sighted, and the new month had begun. The blast would carry throughout the Judean countryside and signal fires would be lit from hill to hill announcing the new month. All of the feasts, with the exception of one, fall within their biblical month and not on the first day of the month. So that means once that new moon is sighted, the month is established 
Everybody can plan. They know exactly when that feast will occur. But in the case of Rosh Hashanah, they didn't have that luxury. They had to be prepared as they waited expectantly for the sound of the shofar announcing its arrival. It's the same with Yeshua. We're told in scripture that we will know the season of his return. Not Just as the ancient people knew that that new moon was imminent, they didn't know exactly when, but it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be the day after. So we know the season, we need to be ready because it could be at any time. None of us wants to be like the five foolish virgins and need more time to prepare because there will not be more time when that shofar sounds and he returns. We'll either be ready or we won't be ready. The time for preparation will then be over. That's why we need this annual rehearsal time so that we can stay ready. The return of the Lord is indeed an exciting time. And consequently, we need to have a positive image of that day. However, I want to remind you of something. The, that day is also referred to sometimes as the great and terrible day of the Lord. As believers, we long for the return of Messiah as we should. So it will be a great day for those of us who know him. But we also need to be prepared for the fact that it will be a day of destruction, wrath, and punishment for those who have rejected him. Think about Noah. The Lord rescued him and his family, giving them refuge in the ark. So they had reason to rejoice. Of all the people on the earth, they alone had been chosen by the creator to be spared from his wrath. That was an awesome privilege. However, even though Noah and his family were safe, and privileged in such a way, it must have been horrible for them, such a righteous man, especially as Noah, to watch and see the destruction of so many godless people. Even though those people had been given an opportunity to be spared, they had rejected God's salvation. And it was their choice, but it still must have been heart-wrenching to Noah and his family to have to watch the destruction. So while we long for that day, we also need to be aware of the destruction that will come with it and step up our prayers for, and our, as well as our witness to, those who do not yet know the Lord. We want them to be part of the bride and to be with us when he returns. Another important step of our preparation is to make sure that we are not harboring unforgiveness, something we talked about again last week. Consequently, one of the biggest areas of focus at this time of year is making sure that we have forgiven others and sought forgiveness of others that we may have harmed. We see over and over again in the scriptures how important forgiveness is to God. Yeshua felt it was extremely important to forgive. So that is definitely one of the things we need to do in order to be prepared to meet him. In Luke 6.28, Yeshua said to bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. This is the opposite of how the world tells us to handle mistreatment. What he was saying, in essence, was that we should not only forgive, but also pray for the good of those who mistreat us. Hard to do sometimes. But Yeshua didn't just preach forgiveness. He lived it. While hanging on the cross, after being brutally beaten, mocked, ridiculed, lied about, you name it, he asked his father to forgive his persecutors because, as he put it, they did not know what they were doing. Let's face it, 
Never has a person been so unfairly treated. The only perfect person who has ever walked the face of the earth. And this is what happened to him. But still he loved those who had caused his death. And guess what? That includes us as well. It wasn't just someone else that killed Yeshua. Our sin killed him as well. What did he do? He not only forgave them himself, but he also asked his father to forgive. So we need to be like him. That's our goal is to become more and more like Yeshua each and every day. And we need to forgive. Even if someone hasn't asked us to forgive them and we don't believe they deserve our forgiveness, we still need to be like Yeshua and forgive them. In order to have a clean conscience before our Lord and Maker, we must forgive. God is the judge, not us. I want to talk about a story here, Joseph. Think back to what Joseph went through. When his father Jacob died, his brothers feared that Joseph would seek retaliation because they had sold him into slavery. Instead, Joseph sought to reassure his brothers by telling them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? We need to be like Joseph, and Joseph is a foreshadow of the Messiah. And we need to be willing to forgive and let God deal with those who have hurt us in his way and in his time. Vengeance belongs to him, not us. Joseph's story shows how those things that happen to us that seem to be bad can be turned to good if we trust God and how those things are also preparing us for the future. And that shouldn't come as a surprise because Isaiah in chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, tells us that the Ruach of Adonai Elohim is on me because Adonai has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Adonai's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Adonai that he may be glorified. Our God can indeed turn our mourning into dancing and give us beauty in the place of ashes if we let him. To get a better idea of this, I want to take a closer look at the story of Joseph. You may remember he was the 11th son of Jacob, and remember, Jacob was renamed Israel by God himself. And he was also, Joseph was also the elder of Jacob and Rachel's two sons, Rachel being Jacob's favored wife. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. So Joseph's brothers were a little bit jealous of him. He was, let's be honest, he was also a little bit of a tattletale, and he didn't hesitate to report his brother's mischief and misdeeds to their father. And we see an example of that in Genesis 37 too. He was also rather naive. He went and told his brothers about his dreams, which revealed his future supremacy and his brother's submission to him. And that only intensified their hatred towards him. So when an opportunity arose at Dothan, his brothers took advantage of it and they concocted a plan to kill Joseph. But Reuben, sought to rescue Joseph instead, and he persuaded the other brothers to spare Joseph's life. That rescue attempt resulted in Joseph being sold to a caravan of Ishmaelites who were on their way to Egypt. Joseph's life was changed in a moment. He went from being the beloved, pampered, favored son of his father to being a slave in an unknown land, Egypt. 
Joseph was then sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, where he was a hardworking and faithful servant. God prospered him and made him successful, and Joseph's master was actually blessed because of Joseph. But because he was fair, young, and handsome, Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him on several occasions. However, Joseph had a very healthy fear of the Lord, and he refused each time. She didn't like being refused, and ultimately, due to false accusations by her, Joseph was cast into prison. We see that in Genesis chapter 39. But once again, God was with him in all his trials and difficulties. Joseph continued to be faithful, and the Lord again blessed him in all his work. The jailer gave him charge of all the other prisoners. He helped the chief bottler, the cupbearer, who had found himself in jail along with Joseph, get his position in Pharaoh's office restored. But the cupbearer kind of forgot about his promise to mention Joseph's innocence to the Pharaoh after he was released. After two years, when Pharaoh had two dreams, the cupbearer suddenly remembered Joseph and his ability to interpret dreams. Joseph was then summoned to appear before Pharaoh and successfully interpreted the dreams, which were that there would be seven years of, of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Because of Joseph's wisdom, he was put in charge of storing food in preparation for the coming famine and was made the chief minister or governor of Egypt. Joseph was also given an Egyptian name and given a bride who was the daughter of an Egyptian priest. By all outside appearances, Joseph was now an Egyptian. And his wife had grown up in the heart of the pagan world not knowing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But inside, Joseph was still an Israelite. And because of her marriage to Joseph, the Egyptian priest's daughter also became part of the Israelites and even gave birth to two sons that became the head of two of Israel's 12 tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, Joseph had an Egyptian bride, a Gentile, who became part of Joseph's family. Likewise with Messiah, he brings those of us who are Gentile into the fold, and we also become part of the people of God. We in no way replace God's chosen people, the Jewish people, but are instead were grafted into them as part of his bride. By, all, by the time all of this had happened, Joseph was 30 years old, and he had suffered and struggled for 13 years. But he now found himself in the most, as being the most influential person in all the known world at that time, next to Pharaoh, thanks to God's hand being on him. His wisdom and planning not only saved the lives of people from Egypt, but also from many other nations. And later, because of the famine, Joseph's brothers came to get provisions. They didn't recognize him because he was an Egyptian at this stage, but he knew them. And he looked at them. He remembered the dream he had when he was a young boy. And he tested them in several ways to see if they had changed, if they were still those conniving brothers that he knew or if their hearts had repented. He forgave them after he revealed himself to them. And he persuaded them to settle in Egypt along with their aged father, Jacob, during the time of the famine. So why didn't God rescue Joseph from all his troubles? He could have done so at any time. He didn't have to go through all those 13 years of testing and trials and difficulties. Okay? God had a plan, and we can't see the plan while we're in it. 
at the end of it, you can look back and see how God was using these experiences to mold him and make him the person he needed to be in order to take that authority and rule in the right way. So while we may see the immediate, God sees our future. And sometimes these trials and difficulties we go through, they're preparation, they're training ground for something greater ahead. During those 13 years, Joseph had a choice. He could become bitter because of all the calamity that had befallen him, or he could accept the bad things that had happened to him as part of God's plan for his life. Because he chose the latter, God was able to use him and save the entire line of Jacob, which is important because Joseph's sons and brothers became the head of the 12 tribes. And from that line, one of his brothers, Judah, Messiah Yeshua, came from him. Okay, the promised Messiah was born into that line. This shows us that God's plan and purposes are greater and better than ours. He provides and he blesses those who persevere to follow him, even in the midst of incredible suffering and persecution. God can indeed use the most painful times of our lives for his good. As Joseph reminded his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And hopefully none of us have ever been through anything as difficult as what Joseph encountered, but if we have, we still need to forgive and move on. Yeshua tells us in Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And all of us want to be forgiven, so we need to be willing to forgive others. It's been said that forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves, and there is a lot of truth in that statement. Forgiveness brings us peace. It allows us to draw closer to God, and it gives us a testimony that may reach people who otherwise would not be reachable and something we should be seeking to achieve during these days of awe. As we just saw, Rosh Hashanah begins the fall feast by focusing on repentance and self-evaluation. That repentance and self-evaluation then culminate in atonement and regeneration on Yom Kippur, which occurs 10 days later. Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32 tells us, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, However, the tenth day of the seventh month is Yom Kippur, a holy convocation to you, so you are to afflict yourselves. You are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. You are not to do any kind of work on that set day, for it is Yom Kippur, to make atonement for you before Adonai, your God. For anyone who does not deny himself on that day must be cut off from his people. Anyone who does any kind of work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You should do no kind of work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It is to be a Shabbat of solemn rest for you, and you are to humble your souls. On the ninth day of the month in the evening, from evening until evening, you are to keep your Shabbat. During these days of awe, we should continue the self-reflection that we began at Rosh Hashanah and repent of the sins we know we've committed this past year. Then on Yom Kippur, when we fast and afflict our souls, we can look forward to being cleared of those sins and our guilt by the judge of the world, God. The word Kippur means covering or atonement. Yom Kippur has long been considered to be the most holy day on the Jewish calendar. It was the one day of the year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the nation. In other words, it illustrates regeneration for those who follow God's way of atonement. 
The day when we receive God's forgiveness, his atonement, was so special that he set it apart as holy and he commanded us not to do any work on that day. It's something we should look forward to and consider very special. A time for us to fellowship with our God and receive a very special gift from him, forgiveness of our sins. As we talked about last week, prior to the destruction of the second temple, part of the atonement was a ceremony described in Leviticus 16 involving two goats. One, called Katat, would be slain as a blood sacrifice to symbolically cover the sins of Israel. That second one was called Azazel, or scapegoat, would be brought before the priest who would lay his hands on the head of the goat as he confessed the sins of the people. The goat would then be set free in the wilderness, symbolically taking the sins of the nation out from their midst. So the sins of the people were not only covered by the blood of the first goat, but they were physically removed from among the people through the second goat. Those two goats are representative of how Yeshua took our sins upon himself, and then he removed them with his blood. Today, in modern times, the hallmark of this day is the fast. We not, there's no longer a temple, so things have been changed. We can no longer do the sacrifices. We can no longer sacrifice those goats. Now we focus on repentance, on prayer, on charity. And now the hallmark is that fast itself. And we begin our fast at sunset on the eve of Yom Kippur, we also participate in what is called a Kol Nidre service, where we ask the Lord to release us from any vows we have made over the past year. The fast then continues until the next evening, during which we reflect on our sins and show true humility and remorse over them. Then as the day comes to a close, we participate in a Nila service, also known as the closing of the gates. The shofar is blown once again, and we come together for a break the fast meal, which officially ends the Yom Kippur season. Regeneration is the aim of Yom Kippur, but only through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, can we be truly changed. So we need to surrender to the Lord and allow him to fill us with his spirit. But guess what? There's more. There always is more with our God. In this season, we are coming out of the summer months. And we've known those summer months here. Yesterday it was in the low 90s. Today will be much cooler. But we know what summer's all about. And all during this dry, hot summer, guess what? There have been no feasts of the Lord. But now, as it's coming to a close, we have three major feasts within a period of only 14 days. We have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. And there's a prophetic significance to this. Agriculturally, the crops have grown during the summer months, and they continue to do so until the arrival of the fall holidays. These fall festivals of the Lord teach us about the second coming of Yeshua. Scripture often speaks of the things of God in terms of agriculture, and the summer growing season is equated to the season of revival that will precede Yeshua's return. Put another way, during these summer months, God grows what will be harvested during the fall season. In this world, it is food for the body. But spiritually and prophetically, the harvest will be revival, the harvest of souls. Yom Kippur reflects the completion of that revival. It symbolizes the regeneration of the Jewish people, in other words, their salvation. 
There will be a day of atonement for Israel as a nation. Current estimates today are that there are around 800,000 Jewish believers. But when that time comes, there will be millions. Yom Kippur is a dress rehearsal for the salvation of the nation of Israel. And we see that in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, where the prophet Zechariah spoke of a future day of repentance when God will pour out his spirit in the latter days and they will look to the one who was pierced. This fits the description of Rosh Hashanah in the prophetic sense as a day of repentance. What follows in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, is extremely relevant. It says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The fall feasts begin with Rosh Hashanah, then comes Yom Kippur. So likewise, after repentance, Yom Kippur, Yom Rosh Hashanah, comes regeneration, Yom Kippur. While we wait for the fulfillment of this feast, I want to encourage all of you to be praying for salvation of the unsaved, especially the Jewish people. As Paul put it in Romans 10.1, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. We should be joining in that prayer. And then in chapter 11, verses 25 and 27, he goes on and says, For I do not want you, my brothers and sisters, to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own eyes, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The deliverer shall come out of Zion. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. After regeneration, Yom Kippur, it will be a time for the marriage supper of the Lamb, also known as the wedding feast. Sukkot, when we celebrate God dwelling among us, is a rehearsal of this future time. And in order to get a better understanding of what this event is, we need to understand two things. We need, first of all, to know what our Father's perspective on marriage is, as revealed in the Torah. And we need to understand the customs of marriage in Yeshua's time. So to understand how Adonai views marriage, I want to look at Genesis 5-2, because that tells us he created them male and female. He blessed them and called their name Adam, humankind, on the day they were created. So marriage, as defined in the Torah, goes well beyond our modern concept of marriage, which is basically a partnership. Notice that when Adonai created man, and before the creation of woman, he called him Adam. However, after he created Eve as a mate for Adam, the term Adam is being used here to refer to the couple as one. And it makes sense, because in God's eyes, a couple joined in marriage becomes a single spiritual entity. A composite individual with two bodies, but possessing one common soul. The union is more spiritual than physical, and has more to do with sharing a soul than simply pooling their physical resources and cohabitating. This spiritual union is only possible with God's help. Only he can fuse two souls into one. And for the sake of time, I'm going to have to skip ahead here to something. Okay. We got started a few minutes late, so I have to skip one part. Okay. So now I want to talk about the ancient Jewish wedding. There are actually four separate parts to the ancient marriage custom. First of all, there's the arrangement. Then there's the legal betrothal. Third, there's the building of the residence where the bride and the groom will dwell. Fourth, there's the marriage itself. 
So let's start with the arrangement. In the ancient Middle East, parents would sometimes arrange the marriage of a son while their child was still an infant. But more often, the father or another relative, if the father was no longer living or had appointed a designee for the task, would choose someone for a young man as he approached marrying age. The bride would be selected from within a very narrow circle of the clan and the family in order to prevent the bride from introducing foreign beliefs and practices. We see a good example of this in Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, when Abraham sought a wife from, for Isaac. And I won't read that for the sake of time, but you may want to go back and look at that. Again, that is Genesis 24. And guess what? Just as marriages were arranged in the ancient Middle East, so too was our marriage to the Lamb of God. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world. In many translations, the word that's used there, chose you, sometimes it's translated chose us. So it could be either chose you or he chose us. In either event, it's telling us that the bride, the body of Messiah, is chosen by God. For this reason, I strongly believe it doesn't mean that he is choosing each and every one of us individually. I choose you and I choose you and you, but I don't choose you. Instead, I think what God is saying here is he chose all of us as his bride, that bride being one. One bride made up of many individuals. But as we'll see in a moment, we have to make the choice to accept that invitation. Okay? Many are chosen, or excuse me, many are called, but few are chosen because we don't always choose to participate. Just as the father would send out someone he trusted to find out to get a bride for his son, Adonai sent out his Ruach HaKadosh to call a bride for his son, Yeshua. It's his Holy Spirit that calls us, and each and every one of us are called. We just have to respond. So let's go on to the legal betrothal. In the ancient Jewish wedding, the legal betrothal was that ceremony that put the bride and the groom in the covenant of marriage. The bride would wear a crown of gold. The man would also wear a crown, and oftentimes that crown would be made of flowers. Our bridegroom, Messiah Yeshua, wore a crown, but his was a crown of thorns. And he was given that crown when he offered himself up for us. And when we meet him face to face, he will present us with the crown of life. During the ceremony, the father of the groom would give a glass of wine to his son, and the son would offer it to the woman. Here's where the choosing comes in. She would then choose whether to accept or not. To take and drink from the cup meant that she had accepted the offer of marriage. The couple would now be considered legally married, although they would live apart and not consummate their union until the actual wedding. In the four cups of Passover, there's a cup called the cup of redemption. Yeshua addresses this in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28. Also, he took a cup of wine, made the bracha, the blessing, and gave it to them, saying, All of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which ratifies the new covenant. My blood shed on behalf of many, so that they may have their sins forgiven. It's important to point out that this act, described in verse 27, was common practice during the Passover at that time. But, verse 28 for this is my blood, which ratifies the new covenant, my blood shed on behalf of many, so that they may have their sins forgiven, was new. They had never heard that before. This cup corresponds to the ancient wedding proposal. 
the cup of wine, the prospective groom would pour for his beloved represented a covenant. If she drank the cup, she would have accepted the proposal and they would be betrothed. By Yeshua offering up the cup to his disciples, he was asking them to become his bride and offering to give up his life for them. Then in verse 20, he told them that he would not drink of the wine again until he returns for his bride. Matthew 26, 29. The new bride and groom, although legally married, would live apart for approximately a year while the groom prepared a home for his new bride. And just as the new husband and bride would live apart for a season until the bridegroom's return, so Yeshua will return to his father, would go ahead and return to his father's house and be separated from his bride while he prepared a, pl a place for her. Getting tongue-tied here. When he returns, he will again say a blessing over the cup of wine, <clears throat> just as was done in ancient Jewish wedding ceremonies. That ceremony finalizes the promises and vows made by both parties. The betrothal was a true covenant. The bride could not belong to another man unless she was divorced from her betrothed, and we see an example of that with Yeshua's parents, Joseph and Miriam, when she was found with child. And I'll let you go back and read that. It's Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, where Joseph had thought about putting her away privately, in other words, divorcing her after she revealed that she was pregnant. And as part of this process, the groom would enter into a ketubah, or a marriage contract, with his new bride. The purpose of that ketubah was to protect the bride. It contained the provisions and conditions of the proposed marriage, Specifically, the groom would promise to support his wife, and the terms of the ketubah would protect her from divorce against her will. It would also stipulate the contents of her dowry, and the dowry was an important part of the process. The bride was literally bought with a price, which would be negotiated between the fathers and which would be given to the father of the bride. It might be money or, in some cases, even services. And it also applies to us. We, the bride and Messiah, were bought with a price. We were bought with the price, the blood of our Messiah, Yeshua. He gave his life for us. So we do have a ketubah, and that ketubah is the new covenant itself. That ketubah specifies that our groom will love and care for his bride. He will give himself for her. He paid the proper price for her, his own life. And we, the bride promise to pay our dowry, which is our yielded life, and to keep ourselves for him. The dowry that the Father paid for us was the blood of his son, Yeshua, which was shed on our behalf. So that means we are betrothed to Yeshua when we accept him. Betrothal also included both the bride and groom separately taking a ritual immersion, a mikvah, which was symbolic of spiritual cleansing. This also applies to us. In order to become the bride of Messiah, we need to become spiritually clean. And a couple of passages you may want to look at, Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27, and 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 11. Now, the building of the residence. The now engaged man would return home and build onto his parents' house. He would labor to ensure that he had done everything so that it would be just right for his new bride. The father had to give his okay when the house was ready so that he could go and claim his bride. Likewise, Yeshua is preparing a place in the father's house for us, and we see that in John chapter 14, 2 and 3, when he says he's going to prepare a place for us and he will come and get us. 
It's important to note that the father, not the groom, would determine when the place his son was preparing for the bride was ready. When he decided it was, he would give his son the go-ahead to go get his bride. And we see the same situation with Yeshua. Adonai and Adonai alone will determine when it is time for Yeshua to return for his bride. In contrast to modern times, the new couple would live with the parents of the groom rather than in their own separate home. These homes were known as insulas, which could also be referred to as a complex. The household would share an open courtyard, as you see here, and then a complex of rooms. The family of the groom gained a new, valuable member of their family when, he, when the groom would marry. That's why the family of the groom would give the bride's father a dowry because they were taking something very special from him. They were taking a valuable member of his family. The wife would remain at her parents' home getting ready by sewing garments. Likewise, we should be preparing our garments, our righteousness, as we read in Revelation chapter 19. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 sets forth the virtues we should have, and we won't look at that today, but I would encourage you to look at it. If you want to be ready, look at chapter 5, that'll, Matthew chapter 5. That'll tell you what you need to do. God wants us to present his son as a bride who is pure, righteous, and living a life that is glorifying to the Lord. Now there's the return for the bride and the marriage. This last step, the return of the bridegroom, usually occurred a year after the betrothal. However, since the father would determine when the time came, the groom did not know until his father gave him the signal. Yeshua himself told us that he didn't know the day or the hour of his return. Just as with any ancient Jewish bridegroom, he must wait until his father gives the word that the set time has come. When the anticipi anticipated time finally arrived, the groom would blow the shofar to announce his arrival at his bride's house. A wedding procession would accompany him and his new bride from her parents' home to their new home. This last part represents the return of Yeshua to claim his bride and take her to his father's house. After this, the couple would be in the full covenant of marriage, which would be followed by seven days of feasting, which is symbolic of what we refer to as the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we see an example of this in John chapter 2, which I would encourage you to read. So now that we've explored the marriage customs of Yeshua's time, I want to go back to that passage in Revelation chapter 19 that we opened with. Okay? Hopefully you understand that what we are seeing here is the wedding feast or the marriage supper of the Lamb, which means that the previous stages have already occurred. Revelation 19 is the seven-day marriage feast, which means that Sukkot is our rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It should therefore be a time of celebration, one that we enter into with singing, dancing, and rejoicing. So, how should we be ready? I want to give you a few questions here to think about. One, what are some of the things I need to repent of? What changes do I need to make in order to avoid repeating those things? Here's two. Where's my number two? Okay. What do I need to do to become more like Yeshua? And that's ultimately how we should be living our lives. So stop and think, what was Yeshua like? How can we become more like him? Do we need to love more, forgive more, have more compassion in our lives? Whatever it is. Number three. 
How can I cultivate a habit of praying for others, especially praying for the salvation of the lost, as well as for revival? Okay. Then in the area of forgiveness, do I need to forgive others? Do I need to ask others to forgive me? Has the Lord forgiven me of something that I have not truly forgiven myself for? Hmm. Am I blaming God for something bad that happened to me or for something that I wanted but he did not give me? If so, it's time to release it and submit it to his will. So I encourage you all to think of those questions, spend a little bit of time dwelling on those. And I want to end now very quickly by sharing a song with you that uh, really beautifully expresses Sukkot. And hang on just a second. Well, it started, so it's not going to stop now, but can we up it just a little bit? Talks about the sukkah, the birth of our Messiah, and uh, his return to claim his bride. And 
Okay. Yeshua will soon return to claim his bride. Us. Are you ready? If not, I want to urge you to use these remaining days of awe to prepare yourself for that meeting. To be ready to receive his forgiveness as we count down to Yom Kippur. By actively participating in these feasts each year, we're keeping ourselves ready and we're ensuring that when he does return, we will be ready. And if you've never made that decision to accept Yeshua into your heart and your life and submit your life to him, I pray that you will do so now before it's too late. So let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. Father, you're great, grand, and glorious, and we know that there is a day coming when Yeshua will return. You've promised in your word you cannot lie. Although you tarry, you tarry for a reason, because you want more people to come to you. You're giving the lost time to come to you, to heed your call. Father, I pray for all those who do not yet know you. I ask that your Holy Spirit would quicken their hearts and that they would make the right decision to submit their lives to you and allow your Holy Spirit to come into their lives, to reside in their lives, to set up your kingdom in their life. And Father, that we would all be ready to meet you when you return to claim your bride. In your name we pray. Amen.